3, verse 14 to 22. Hey, uh, can you turn the AC down a little? Don't turn it off. Just maybe lower the fan a little because I'm standing right under it. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14 to 22. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the Amen. What a name, eh? That Jesus has a name and one of his names is Amen. These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness. The ruler of God's creation. What a brilliant name, the ruler of God's creation. Despots, tyrants, kings, presidents, prime ministers, billionaires think they rule the world. The ruler of God's creation. Faithful and true witness. What a character to aspire to. What a characteristic to aspire to. Faithful and true witness. I know your deeds. He always knows. Huh? I know your deeds that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline. Don't be afraid of God's discipline aid. Even though it, it is painful, it is such an act of love. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. This is the whole co-heir thing. He overcomes, he sits on his father's throne. You overcome, you get the same rights. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I know you've heard this preached by many different preachers and I've preached it too in the past. And verse 15 is where most uh, uh, of the preaching goes to, where it says in verse 15, that I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Uh, when you read verse 15, the problem with verse 15 is uh, that Christ's desire that they be either hot or cold seems to indicate or seems to imply that both extremes are okay with Jesus. Which is kind of odd, eh? That he's okay with you being cold spiritually as much as he's okay with you being hot spiritually. 
That seems so uncharacteristic, and you don't find scriptures elsewhere to back that up. But that is where we usually go with this. Laodicea was located, Laodicea was located about 10 kilometers south of this place called Hierapolis. And uh, uh, 15 kilometers from Colossae. And uh, we read this, uh, read about this in Colossians 4, 13 to 16. Colossians 4, 13 to 16. Colossians 4, 13 to 16. You read Paul mentioning both places when he writes to the Colossians. He says in verse 13, I will, um, actually, let's start at verse 12, because Epaphras seems to be the one who uh, was the guy who was in charge of that entire area, Hierapolis, Laodicea, Colossae, and here's what it says there. Uh, Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ, Jesus sends greetings. He's always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he's working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. Give my greetings to brothers at Laodicea and Nympha and the church in her house. And then listen to verse 16. After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. So these were very connected. Why am I bringing this up because in Hierapolis you had hot medical springs or medicinal springs, not medical springs. They didn't have the provincial health officer in those days. So in Hierapolis you had the hot, you had hot medicinal springs and in Colossae, Colossae they had uh, uh, Cold, pure waters. It was known for cold, pure water. So you had Colossae, which had like lakes or ponds that were, or streams that were cold, pure water. And then at Hierapolis, you had hot medicinal springs. The waters in Laodicea, though, and Laodicea had a problem with water. The waters in Laodicea, though, had to be brought in through an aqueduct and the water was tepid and lukewarm. So the contrast that Jesus is trying to bring is between the hot medicinal waters of Hierapolis and the cold pure waters of Colossae. One would provide healing to those that were sick, or supposedly provide healing to those that were sick. The other would provide relief or refreshing to those that were weary or thirsty. And I would suggest to you that it makes more sense to go with the uh, thought 
that the church in Laodicea was being rebuked, not for its spiritual temperature, but for the fact that it neither was providing healing for the spiritually sick, nor was it providing refreshment for the spiritually thirsty or weary. So the church was not being rebuked for its spiritual condition or temperature. It was being rebuked for what we will call the barrenness of works. They seem to have faith, but they didn't seem to have any works to back up that the faith they had. And that'll be our focus over today and tomorrow. And this is going to be a super short teaching. Um, that is our focus. We have faith, uh, yes, but do we have works? That is our focus. We have faith, but do we have works? So that will be what we look at today and tomorrow. So I would say that we have faith, but I'll ask the question, do we have works? It's an important question to ask at this stage in the life of the church and in terms of this revival that God wants to uh, spread throughout the earth. A church that is in right relationship with God, a church that is in right relationship with God, uh, is a church that has works producing faith. A church... A church that is in, a church that is in right relationship with God is a church that, that has work producing or work bearing faith. Work producing or work bearing faith. And is that how we are? It's not a barren faith. It's not a barren faith, as in a lot of faith that is being exerted, uh, perhaps for good personal reasons where personally we benefit. But we're talking about churches, or the kind of church that Jesus Christ wants, that the kind of church that is in right relationship with God, or the kind of church that is righteous, is a church that shows faith, but it is a works-producing or a works-bearing faith, not a barren faith. One of, the, um, uh, one of the outputs of our times is that in Christianity, faith is used for personal outcomes, not for corporate outcomes. Not everything I teach here necessarily applies to Acts 29, but it is important to ask this question of Acts 29 too. So, and a faith that doesn't produce works, a faith that doesn't produce works, a faith that doesn't produce works,
should beg the question, what are we talking about when we say works? Any answers? When we say f a works producing faith, what are we talking about? And it's important to know because if we are right about what Jesus is pointing out to the church in Laodicea, it means that they, were n they, they seem to be rich, they seem to have uh, things together, but Jesus is saying, listen, you're neither hot nor cold, as in you have what it takes, but you, uh, I'm not talking about your spiritual condition, I'm talking about the fact that there's a barrenness of works. The, you're not showing any works for the faith you have. And he rebukes them. He asks them to repent of it. He tells them that it's vomit-worthy. So what does a life that what does a life look like that has faith but does not have works? There's a whole chapter written on that in James chapter 2 which we'll go to tomorrow and look at it, some of it today. So let's kind of define what we mean by uh, a faith that does not produce works. A faith that does not produce works is a faith that only looks out for itself. This is where we start, guys, but it is not where we stay. One of the things that happened with the faith mo movement is that it became a place where people learned how to grow and exert faith for their own needs. And so it's where we start. Everything has to start with you practicing something, but it's not supposed to then hone in on you. So a faith that doesn't produce works is a faith that only looks out for itself. To a faith that does not fight for others. It's one thing to look just for yourself, and then there are opportunities to fight for others, but you you choose not to, because if you fight for others, you'll have to take on their giants. You'll have to take on their giants. Why take on their giants when you have giants of your own? A faith that doesn't produce works. A faith that retreats when the promise is not visible. As in, God says something and uh, you step out in faith, but when you see what God has said not coming to pass, then you begin to retreat, you begin to dilute, you begin to um, um, tame your step of faith because you have to be reasonable now. A faith that, so basically, a faith that retreats or a faith that begins to reason a faith that begins to reason when the promise is not visible 
or when the promise is opposed opposed strongly or violently a faith that doesn't produce works is a faith that doesn't grow as in your faith stories are about 10 years old or 5 years old there are no new stories being authored by the holy spirit because of your faith i hated when i had to refer to something in your life that happened 5 years ago 2 years ago i do it so that i can encourage you so that i can use that story to encourage others but inside my head and i say this of myself too inside my head i think what about last month or two months ago because if faith is a preferred lifestyle then faith happens every day a faith that doesn't produce works is a faith that is not exerted corporately as in it's just a couple of people that exert it it isn't something that is growing as a people it is growing as just a couple of leaders or individuals so you have a joshua a caleb a moses and an aaron when there were actually a million people that left egypt now these four have to carry the unbelief of a nation on their shoulders and if those heroes get taken out then an entire nation dies and so all the enemy has to focus on is can i take the leaders out Jesus himself said when the shepherd is struck the sheep scatter what if you began to become a people that exert faith corporately like david's mighty 30 like gideon's 300 what happens then what happens then where who do you attack who do you pick out it's like a juggernaut that rolls over you every time you stand up against it faith that doesn't produce works is a faith that is not exerted corporately a faith that doesn't produce works is a faith that speaks praise declares but does not act or take the risk i'm afraid that we can become like that very easily i'm afraid that because we are city slickers i'm afraid that because we are a powerful declaration church a praying church when necessary a speaking church i'm afraid that 
that is one way that faith can go barren in our case. Where there's a lot of declaration, a lot of speaking, but not enough action to match the declaration and the speaking. A faith that doesn't produce works is a faith that waits for conditions to be right. As in, it says in Ecclesiastes, when you cut a tree, don't try to figure out should it fall north, should it fall south. No, when you cut a tree, go through with it. If you're watching the clouds with you, should I go out today, should I not go out today, you won't end up going at all. It is, the, it is faith that waits for all the conditions to be right. What were the Israelites waiting for in their foxholes? What was going to happen every day for 40 days when Goliath came out? What, was, what were they thinking? What was going to happen? A stroke of lightning? Saul suddenly having the courage? Goliath having a heart attack? What were they thinking of? 40 days, 40 nights. Twice a day. Shaking in their armor like the song says. A faith that doesn't produce works looks like this. Unfortunately, this teaching is going to go long because I had none of these in my notes. So it was much shorter before I started. <laughs> so could someone take a picture? Oh, you've written it down? Okay. That's what a faith that doesn't produce works look like. A faith that doesn't produce works, be it the ten spies, be it Zechariah, be it Laodicea. Zechariah didn't have the faith for it. The ten spies didn't have it. They had faith, but they didn't produce works. Zechariah had faith. He was um, one of those priests who used to actually get to minister once in many years in the Holy of Holies. And um, be it the ten spies, be it Zechariah, or be it Laodicea. It was not a lack of faith. It was a lack of works. And Whenever that happens, it's vomit-worthy unless repented of. It is vomit-worthy unless repented of. It is vomit-worthy unless repented of. And what it does in the bargain is it silences God's promise. Whenever faith is present but works are absent, whenever the faith I have is not a works-producing, works-bearing faith, then it silences God's promise. It silences God's purpose, it silences God's provision, and it silences God's um, posterity. As in, uh, uh, it's not your purpose that is being silenced. It's not your posterity that is being cut off. It is not your promise that is being undone. It's not your provision that is being held back. We think it is ours, and so we want to, again, rise up and exert individual faith. No, just imagine if Acts 29 does not exhibit works bearing faith, then imagine the promise of God for the earth passing us by. It's God's promise that passes us by. It gets silenced. It's God's provision that is awaiting the church that then goes dry. It is God's purpose that gets delayed, that gets denied. 
It's God's posterity, as in God's intent to produce more Davids and Josephs and Daniels that get silenced. So what does God have to do? Go find another people. It's one of the not so happy God tasks that God does. Going finding another people. You think Capernaum should have been passed by? You think Galilee should have been passed by? He came to his own people, man. And then the other, the, the, uh, the other fact is most churches won't even step into this place of just exerting faith, leave alone producing works. And the churchianity is paying the cost of diluting, of hyping, of sterilizing, of taming, of rationalizing faith because the church in general is toothless. Because we rationalize faith. We sterilize it, we tame it, we hype it. And we're producing a toothless church. But just having faith and confessing it while important and it gives you teeth, it doesn't mean that it produces works. And that's what I want us to just remember for the next two days, today and tomorrow. And then practice it for the rest of your life. So be it salvation, be it healing, be it revival. Faith cannot be reduced. Faith cannot be reduced. Faith cannot be reduced to confession or just sheer trust. That's a great place to start. But it cannot be reduced to confession and trust. It puts us in a difficult position, eh? This teaching. Because we can say all the confessions we want, we can sing all the confessions we want about revival, but now Jacob, if you are not able to lead the people into actual works producing faith, then you're a great faith teacher. That's all you are. Works producing faith is what God is looking for. Always been looking for. The Bible is full of stories of works producing faith. All the guys in Hebrews chapter 11 were works producing faith people. Faith is invisible and fetal till takes on full-blown action. Faith is invisible and fetal until it takes on full-blown action or until it's, yeah, until it takes on full-blown action uh, or works. It must go into full-blown acts or works before it can move from its nascent stage to something that is mature, something that is visible. Otherwise it remains invisible. Here's the thing guys, and this really caught me. It is one thing to say to your servants, 
yes, the boy and I are going up that mountain and you begin the journey. That's great. The confession is made and you even take a, take a step of faith. As you're going up the mountain, your boy turns to you and he says to you, but father, where is the lamb for the sacrifice? And it's still wonderful that you have the faith and the confession and the belief to say, God will provide a lamb. And you get to the top of the mountain and you're absolutely sure God will provide the lamb. But now you get to the top of the mountain and there is no lamb. Works producing faith is when you actually take your son and bind him and put him on the altar and pull out your knife. That is works producing faith. And that is the question I'm asking you. Do you have it? Do I have it? Do we have it? Genesis 22 verse 8 talks about it. It is one thing to say God will provide a lamb in Genesis 22, 8. But it's another thing then to bind your son and lay him on the altar in Genesis 22, 9 when there is no lamb visible. And then it is quite another thing to pull out your knife. What kind of faith is this, man? It is works producing faith. It, it is fruit bearing faith. It engages in works. And therefore it is counted to you as being in right relationship with God. crazy man guys these are the standards we must aspire for because faith is being lost on the earth you can see now why Jesus said and it's a horrible statement he makes but when I return will I find faith on the earth he asks that question because faith is being lost on the earth faith is being lost how Faith is not being lost by individuals. Faith is being lost by the people of God. The people of God collectively are no longer behaving like Gideon's 300, no longer behaving like um, David's mighty 30. But you have to have these individuals. Faith is faith is faithfulness. I love this. Faith is faithfulness to a command. Faith is faithfulness. Faith is faithfulness to a command, which is then evidenced in acts or works. Faith is faithfulness to a command. He received a command. Take your son, go to the mountain. I want you to offer a sacrifice. It's faithfulness to a command. This is why we as a church have less and less excuse because unfortunately, in a way of speaking, we've learned to hear the voice of God. 
So we will hear commands. Now that you hear commands, immediately you go into a place where now you have your, it'll be seen whether you'll be faithful, faithful to the command, church. And then, if you're faithful to the command, it's one thing to confess it, one thing to trust in it, one thing to pray it, one thing to sing it. It's another thing to now evidence it in acts or works as a group of people. So we're not talking, I mean, when, the problem with James, as soon as he wrote the book of James and people began reading it, the problem became, oh, Paul said it was by faith, James is saying it's by work. It's not faith plus works. It's working faith. Because a workless faith is not a lifestyle uh, that is acceptable for a believer. A workless faith, a worksless faith is not a lifestyle acceptable for a believer. So God is not saying, okay, now that you've shown faith, I want you to work. No, now that you've shown faith, let me see your works. It should produce fruit. That's why I said this line before that. Faith is faithfulness to a command. The hearing and the faithfulness to what you've heard is still vitally important. Guys, the reason we can avoid works and just stick with faith is because once, because we don't, the reason we cannot avoid works and just stick with faith is because works actually test your faith. As in, hey Abraham, so you're a man of great faith. Sure, let me test you. Let me see whether you will offer your only son who I gave you by promise, whether you'll offer him up to me. Works test your faith. Second, works prove your faith. Works test your faith. What is faith? Faithfulness to a command. And evidenced in acts or works. Acts, yeah. Works test your faith. Did I tell you this, Jacob? Well, let me test your faith by seeing whether you will actually put it into action. What, what works have you shown me for the command I gave you? What have you done? And like I said, it has to be work-bearing faith, which means you've got to go through those lists, that list that I put up earlier to see whether it actually produces works. Does it, does it begin to retreat? Does it begin to rationalize once you realize that Yes, a command was given, but I don't have the means. Yes, the command was given, but I am facing opposition. Yes, the command was given, but I have to be reasonable. Yes, the command was given, but I will look foolish. 
please try not to apply this to your personal lives only. Please think of us as a church too. It's not just the pastor's job to think of us as a church. So apply to your individual lives, yes. But think of us as a church too. It's very easy for a church that knows how to walk in faith to be happy with the faith that we are exerting every day with the muscle that we earned eight years ago. It's very easy for a church or an individual to think that they're walking well in faith using a muscle that they developed eight years ago. Because that muscle that they developed is still 95% better than the rest of the people around them. But it is still eight years old now. Part of the reason I encourage you to discover your season in life, your destiny at this particular time in your life, what it looks like for the next six months, is if you don't discover it, you will never meet a Goliath bigger than the one you dealt with last time. And if you don't meet a Goliath bigger than the last one you met, you will never break into a new place. So my question is, is Acts 29 dealing with bigger Goliaths now, or is Acts 29 dealing with Goliaths that it already beat two years ago, three years ago? That is my fear. And I'm saying to you, actually, that Acts 29 is beating giants that it has already learned how to beat some years ago. We're not beating new giants. And there ain't no revival going to happen, and there ain't no new territory going to come till we now begin to step into works-producing faith, which I hope to talk about tomorrow. It's like beating the same soccer team over and over again. I mean, the Boston Bruins don't take any more pleasure in beating the Maple Leafs. It's like happening for years on end. How do we know the new giants? You know the new giants only if you take a risk into a territory you haven't gone to before. You will never meet new giants if you are staying still in the place that you have now occupied for a little while. Opposition, intimidation, fear, uh, difficulty to make progress, size, impossibility, irrationality, illogical and suddenly I mean all the things that you would not desire the best way to look at it is Deuteronomy 9.3 I know I've read this recently but just look at it again Deuteronomy 9.3 Um, one, one, two, three. Hear, O Israel, you're now about to cross the Jordan to go in and dispossess nations greater and stronger than you with large cities that have walls up to the sky. The people are strong and tall 
Anakites, you know about them and have heard it said, who can stand up against the Anakites? But be assured today that the Lord your God is the one who goes across ahead of you like a devouring fire. So he's sending them into a territory where the cities are larger, the walls are higher, the, giant, the people are giants, um, stronger, greater than the Israelites who have come out of slavery but are still not the warrior type. But he's sending them into it because without sending them into it, God cannot prove himself anymore to us. That's a sad thing. Not only do you not... At the end of the day, who are the people that... Who suffers for not producing works-related faith? The people. Why? Because their God is mid-size. Their God is the size they met two years ago. Their God doesn't grow larger because there are not, there's nothing to beat. That is bothersome for me. And I'm saying to you that Acts 29 needs works producing faith afresh because the giants we are presently beating are giants that we've beaten two years ago. It's a foolish thing I'm doing. There's another scripture. Oh, I wish someone would find it for me. It's a scripture that says that I leave some opposition, I leave some opposition behind so that you get seasoned in war. Can you find that? Might be in Joshua. Don't take my word for it. If you find that, let me know. I'd love to read that scripture. Um, can half of you find it and half pay attention? Or let's just wait till someone finds it. Like I said, the teaching is short. We're trying to prolong it so that you don't feel like you're in another church. Someone find it? Pardon? What? It is Joshua? Oh, wow. Judges 3.1, okay. Yeah, Judges 3.1 is the one I'm looking for. Hiya. Judges 3.1. These are the nations the Lord left to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of Israelites who... Uh, had not had previous battle experience. Just think of that, man. Isn't it nuts? What kind of God is this? Is this a God you really want? These are the nations the Lord left to test all the Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of Israel who had not had previous uh, battle experience. Verse 4, they were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the Lord's commands which he had given their forefathers through Moses. It is nuts, man. So I'm going to lead us in a prayer shortly saying, I'll try not to be like George Bush saying, bring it on. Uh, it won't be that crass, but it'll be 
saying, oh God, please, we are dealing with giants from two years ago. So, works actually test your faith, works prove your faith. And then the other cool thing is that works are followed by provision. So in Genesis 22, you see works testing Abraham. Offer your only son. Then you see works proving Abraham. Do not touch that boy. You have not held back your own son from me. And so you have proven your faith. And I credit it to you as right standing with me. And then a most marvelous thing happens. God turns up as Jairah. Yahweh Jairah, that's the name that is revealed immediately after. For there was a lamb caught in the thicket. It was invisible and suddenly it becomes visible. And Moses builds an altar and calls that place Yahweh Jairah, God the provider. There are rewards. So it's the meshing of believing and acting that gets you named God's friend. That's the other cool thing that happens. Believing, confessing, praying is great. But there's a place that every church must desire to go. There's a place every individual in a church should desire to go. Or there's a place that every church must desire to go. And that place is God's friend. And that happens through the meshing of believing and acting. The mesh of believing and acting gets you named God's friend. The mesh of believing and acting gets you named God's friend. Let me conclude with a scripture and then I'll pray and then we'll sing the voice of truth one more time. Go to James, go to the message, go to James chapter 2. Verse 16 onwards. James 2, 16 onwards from the message. Uh, James 2, 17 onwards from the message. Isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense? I can already hear one of you agreeing by saying, sounds good, you take care of the faith department, I'll handle the works department, not so fast. You can no more show me your works apart from your faith than I can show you my faith apart from my works. Faith and works, works and faith, fit together hand in glove. Do I hear you professing to believe in the one and only God, but then observe you complacently sitting back as if you had done something wonderful? That's just great. Demons do that too. But what good does it do them? Use your heads. Do you suppose for a minute that you can cut faith and works in two and not end up with a corpse on your hands? Wasn't our ancestor Abraham made right with God by works when he placed his son Isaac on the sacrificial altar? 
Isn't it obvious that faith and works are yoked partners? That faith expresses itself in works? That works are the works of faith? The full meaning of believe in the scripture sentence, Abraham believed God and was set right with God, includes his action. It's that mesh of believing and acting that God Abraham named God's friend. Is it not evident that a person is made right with God not by barren faith, but by faith fruitful in works? The same with Rahab, the Jericho harlot. Wasn't her action in hiding God's spies and helping them escape that seamless unity of believing and doing what counted with God? The very moment you separate body and spirit, you end up with a corpse. Separate faith and works, and you get the same thing, a corpse. Sometimes the message is able to convey it very simply, very clearly. I'm going to do the song first and then the prayer. Just once through, maybe the chorus repeated at the end, but otherwise straight through, and then we'll pray.